and I suppose life, without getting too deep, I suppose life is complicated and these, these, these vessels that we live in need to somehow function and also express our personalities, mm. express our ambitions and our, our, our aspirations as well. Yeah. So as your aspirations change and as your, your, your tastes and your needs change, you can either leave it as it is mm. and accept that, okay, this is, this is it and I'll work around it, or you, you're someone that says, well, I want to change this. Hello and welcome to another episode of Homing In, the podcast that explores the meaning of home in people's lives. My name is Matt Gibbard and this podcast is brought to you by The Modern House, which is the company I co-founded in my slightly sordid bedroom back in 2005. We're a design-led estate agency which sells and celebrates the most amazing, beautiful homes throughout the UK. My guest today is the architect Duncan McLeod. Uh, now, Duncan's someone I've known for many years now, and I'd say he's definitely one of the good guys. We first met when I was commissioned to write a piece for the World of Interiors about the amazing house he shares with his wife, Lindsay, and also their young son, Oban. Duncan's kindly invited me back to the house to record this episode. We're following the usual homing in format, um, so I've asked Duncan to discuss a home from his past, his current place, and also an imaginary home of the future. He tells me about how growing up on building sites brought him closer to his father, the importance of magic in architecture, and also why he believes you should always design a house as if you're gonna play hide and seek in it. Duncan certainly isn't the first guest to shed a tear or two on this podcast, uh, and I think this is a really lovely, very heartfelt conversation. Happy listening. So Duncan, I, I, wanna, I wanna jump right in and just ask about your childhood. Um, oh, deep. I <laughs> know. <laughs> Hello. We asked you to pick a home of the past yeah. to speak to us about. So what, what have you chosen? So when you asked, I, it, my mind was kind of like, wow, I don't know if any homes from my past were particularly memorable or worthy. And, and then thinking about it, suddenly that became really interesting to me, that actually I didn't grow up in a beautifully architecturally designed home. Yeah. None of my parents are architects, no architects in the family. But my dad was the kind of key person who made the architecture of the home or the, the building interesting in that he would, he just needed a project all the time. My dad always needed to change the house in some way. So I basically grew up on, in different building sites, or at least that's how I remember it. Yeah. There were probably years and years when they were just normal homes, but yeah. fondest memories are actually when they were part building sites. And it was like room by room. Sometimes we'd, we had, I think three houses, as we went through, like waking up and having to walk over rubble because my dad was demolishing a wall in the bathroom. Yeah, and he, so he, it was his energy and his ambition to make our homes better that I think stayed really stayed with me. It's probably one of the big reasons I'm, I'm an architect. I wrote to him the other day and said, you're one of my heroes, you know? Did you? And he said, heroes are courageous. Yeah, and, uh, is he courageous? I think so. Yeah. yeah. What was it? It's okay. Yeah, I think so. Why, why are you getting emotional talking about that? I definitely don't want that to go in. It's too early. <laughs> um, why, am I, why is it emotional for me? Uh, yeah, I just, yeah, I love my parents, like, like most people. Uh, yeah. And uh, you see them change over the years. And um, definitely as he's grown older, he's become more protective to stop people having pain or discomfort. 
And so I see him as one of the most courageous people. I mean, him and my mum used to do trips to, to Italy on Vespers. They moved away from Newcastle in a very working class family and moved to London, which is, you know, the big city. And so, yeah, that, that's, that's why I think he's courageous. Well, how would, you, how would you define his courage? Being brave to just do things. And I suppose it's, it's sad because I think as he's grown older, he's be- become less, he's been like, more likely, he still does projects. He's just finished a massive kind of kitchen remodeling in our house. But then as you get older, you get more stubborn about other things. Mm. So, yeah. So these, these building sites yeah. that you talk about <laughs> and, and you can't remember much in between. <clears throat> Where are we here? We're in London. We're in uh, Middlesex. So it was all around Northolt, Greenford, okay. Borning, Perivale. And the first house was in, in Greenford. And, and what sort of building were we talking? Terrace, post-war, mm-hmm. very basic, little garden at the back on a hill. And but what was memorable about it for me is that we had, he built a tank between our bathroom and our toilet. So we had one of those separate toilets. And you know that wall that's kind of storage wall, the hot water cylinders in there. So he took part of it and turned it into a snake tank <laughs> between toilet in the bathroom so I used to sit there on the loo looking at this snake just sticking its tongue in and out and again it just felt fine and normal so that was that was the first thing that the first space that I remember what, what what's your view on bringing up children on building sites because you might think that would have a detrimental effect actually you talk about climbing over rubble and stuff yeah do you but do you see it as a positive thing really positive do you yeah. why is um, that because you can see the workings of a place and you can see that you can change it. I think that's what I got from my, from my dad is that houses weren't these closed boxes. I love to see the workings of it all. Yeah. And actually, the house should never possibly be finished. Is that what you think? Yeah, because life doesn't stand still. Yeah. Life is always changing. So what, what, have you ever thought about this? What do you think it is that compels us to expend all this energy and time on our homes? trying to improve them, trying to make them better all the time. I mean, your, your dad obviously did that quite feverishly by the sounds of it. Yeah. What's the sort of chip inside us that does that? I think the obvious one is the search for happiness. Mm-hmm. Within, embedded within that, there's probably that human need for more. Rightly or wrongly, there's a human need for more. And I suppose life, without getting too deep, I suppose life is complicated and these, these, these vessels that we live in need to somehow function and also express our personalities, mm. express our ambitions and our, our our aspirations as well. Yeah. So as your aspirations change and as your 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 tastes and your needs change, you can either leave it as it is mm. and accept that okay, this is this is it, and I'll work around it. Or you you're someone that says no, I want to change this. Mm. Yeah. Did you get as a child? Were you quite hands on with your dad? Did you get your hammer out and definitely I had didn't have my own hammer, but <laughs> he he was definitely wrote me in his cheap labour. Which again looking back is some of the happiest happiest days. Just the hard work. My yeah. dad was great at, at saying, Okay, tea break in one hour. Right. And so you knew that it was one hour's time and you're gonna have a break and then you'd sit down, you'd have a chocky bicky and a cup of tea mm. and then get on to the next bit. Mm. And it was lovely. It was great having connection with your 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 parent in that sense. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I had a similar-ish experience because my dad was an architect, and yeah, like like you, there was a certain amount of building site time. Yeah. But also going to his other projects, and 
I mean, not until I was in my sort of late teens, but certainly helping out and cart stuff around, fill up a skip and things like that. And you're absolutely right. You do, if I think about it as you're talking, actually, I, I realized that you, I did, yeah, I, I did definitely get a sense of how things slot together. And I don't know about you, but my favorite part of a project, funnily enough, is, is when a building has sort of been stripped bare. Yes. And it's it's right down to those essentials and you can really you can really feel the space and yeah it's I don't know there's it sort of ha- only has potential that's how I see it. I think there's a reassurance within that stage that you haven't messed anything up yet as well. Yeah, exactly right. Mm. And do do you remember him and or you having a feeling of satisfaction when that project was finished or can you only remember the process? That's a really interesting question. I can only remember the process. Yeah. So there was never this big there was never this big reveal. Yeah, right. So there was another space that you wanted to talk about from your childhood, wasn't there? Tell us about that one. Yeah, the last one, the, the hide-and-seek house in Hastings. And again, I had to verify this with my mum recently just to check that it was real because it was one of those memories <laughs> that it seemingly morphed so much that I couldn't tell if it was real or not. And I was relieved to hear that it was actually real. But we visited some family friends in Hastings and I remember I was probably, again, about five, five or six and we were in this old house, Victorian-ish house, some panelling on the walls. felt very homely, very playful. I remember that the adults were doing the adult thing, the, the kids had all got together, and we were playing hide-and-seek. And I remember running around trying to find somewhere to hide, having gone upstairs and downstairs and panicking a little bit because I'm the one that's going to get caught first. I, I saw this little door, and as I went through it, I was suddenly absolutely blown away because I was inside a church. It, it literally blew my mind, but it's as close to that Narnia moment and that, that feeling that, wow, the world is magical. I'm, I'm in a dream yeah. <laughs> that I've probably ever been in. And it really struck, it really struck me. And that was, that was the end of the memory. Looking back, it was, it was kind of confirmed very soon after that, you know, basically I'd walked into the house playing with a toy or head in a book or something, hadn't looked up, and the house belonged to the verger. And so his house was attached to the side of this church. And all I'd done is go through the little service entrance into this church. Very basic, very mundane, but mm. to a kid who just didn't know it was there. And that's definitely stuck with me. And definitely that, that sense of drama or, you know, that wow factor that people talk about. That's definitely something that we try to get almost in every, in every space that we, we create. That sense of magic somewhere. Do you believe in magic? Oh, do I believe in magic? Big question. Without again getting too soppy, yeah. When you're when you have a close connection to someone, or you're having that moment, that kind of perfect day moment, and it just doesn't seem real. Yeah, everything's a bit too perfect. I had one recently, and it was you know the sun dappling through some trees in a cafe. I had a nice fry up in front of me, <laughs> and then my son decided to come and sit on my lap and draw like these wonderful little drawings of spaceships and planes, and I just looked at him. And just realise that yeah, this is this is one of those perfect moments. I believe in that magic. Yeah, hiding things up sleeves probably not. Um, <laughs> but you're a romantic, aren't you? I think probably. Lindsay would probably say less so these days. <laughs> <But> <laughs> definitely, definitely. It's that it's that human connection. And I mean, when we did the the perfect day event for London Festival of Architecture, and we thought we would try and distill our our design process down into half hour slots. So what if someone could come in and we could we could work with them within that 25 minutes to design their perfect home in 25 minutes? And those kind of questions, those kind of constrictions, 
and challenges excite me. And we, so we started designing this process and we start with very rough and ready questions. And over the period of kind of four hours or so in the studio, and we we're testing this idea out where we'd ask questions about, okay, where might this house be? Mm. Um, what can you see around you? And okay, you, know, you can now picture your perfect home. What's it look like? And that then turned into just a series of probably eight or nine questions that took people through what a perfect day might look like and what their perfect home might look like. Then at the end, we tried to quickly do a sketch. And when we presented that sketch to people that we tested out and they were like, no, no, not like that. That That that, window never been there. Exactly. (laughs) When I said oval, I didn't mean that kind of oval. (laughs) And suddenly, vividly, I could see the problem with our industry. Yeah. Yeah. Spend the next 10 years iterating. So we took a step back and, and said, actually, yeah, look, it, maybe it's impossible to design their house or understand what their perfect house would be within 25 minutes. Yeah. But maybe those, those questions could lead them to a really vivid picture of what that perfect moment might look like. Very vivid. And so the questions were, within that 25 minutes, if you, it started with, if you could imagine your perfect day, where in the world might that be? And because it's a very specific question, and because we talked about them before before the interview, you know, there are there are no restrictions, there's no money, no time, removed all those restrictions that people generally put in the way of a real project. But the, the, the answers were coming out very fluidly. And so it'd be like, yeah, I'm oh I, yeah, I love Cornwall. Cornwall, yeah, whereabouts in Cornwall might that be? And then they'd expand on that and then go specifically, okay, you're in Cornwall, what time of year might it be? Oh, good call. oh, yeah, I love it. Late spring, so it's not too cold, not too warm. And what type of de- time of day would it be? Oh, early afternoon. Oh, early afternoon. I've just had lunch, looking forward to something. And then the, the, the key question that came out was the, who were you with? Mm. And that's what broke people in terms of their emotions. It would, mm. the, you'd either get people saying, I'm on my own. Yeah. Or you get people saying, oh, and then there's that kind of emotional pause. And then they describe the people closest to them. Yeah. So we get to the end of that, and then we they, we ask them, we take them on a kind of step by step journey to describe their their home, and then a room within it, and then a quirk within that room, and then an object within that room. Mm. So like the design process, working from big to small. Yeah. And then we simply read it back to them, but we read it back verbatim. So if they said a wobbly round window, we wouldn't interpret that as anything other. We would just wouldn't interpret it. We'd just say there's a wobbly round window because it didn't matter what we understood it to be at that point. Mm. It was just really important for them to have that picture read back to them. And quite often there were, there were tears as you read it back from them, sometimes from us, because they, they just described something that at that point was for them was perfect. Yeah. And it, they were all generally really simple things, really achievable things. Didn't, mm. didn't require a lot of money didn't even require that home to be theirs. It just required usually an afternoon with family or friends doing something pleasant like eating or drinking and looking forward to something mm. later on that day. And so while we were reading that back, if someone in the studio was then printing that onto a, a page of an old book, you know, that yellowish, quite textured paper with with the, the edge torn and a little bit ruffled. And then that was mounted on in just a simple piece of simple glass frame. And then that's a memory of, of one perfect day out of a possible book of perfect days. I see. And that's what they take away with them. 
that memory of a perfect moment in their mind. We didn't, you know, for us to then design the house, mm. it would then take many, many more conversations. And that felt kind of magical that you could just by asking people, it could evoke an emotional response. Yeah. I mean, that, that leads me on to your design process, I think has been referred to as architectural therapy. Mm. Right? <laughs> And that sounds very much like architectural therapy to me, but let's, let's, let's just imagine a moment I've just walked through your door and mm. I'm thinking about building a house or adapting a building or something. Yeah. You sit down with me. What, 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 do you, what do you ask me? What do you say? Oh, it's funny. Because as soon as you say that, it's like, <clears throat> I don't, there, that first question, there, isn't, there definitely isn't a formula. That our first job is to switch on our ears yeah. and listen and to understand but it, that first few moments as you walk from the front door to the table or if i come to see you yeah and all the conversations we might have had on the phone yeah we'll, we'll start the conversation yeah it's usually trying to understand the thing that they need to change right so what is it that you need help with and from that expands generally a conversation about what's working and what's not working and then is the la- is that almost a longer process of what we talked about in that perfect day session Mm. So it's a very, it, it can be quite an intimate conversation. We don't, you know, the term architectural therapy, I, I like because that it is a lovely conversation and it is simply asking questions to try and understand what would make them happier. We definitely don't ask them about their relationship with their uh, father. <laughs> yeah. As you started with, like, how was your childhood? <laughs> very happy, thanks very much, man. <laughs> so it is, it, is, it is a conversation and it's to try and understand what makes them happy so we can understand how the house would then allow them to do more of what they think might make them happy. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very, it's very emotional. It's very human centric, right? Yeah. Which is not what you would expect from an architecture process. I don't think. Yeah. So I'm really fascinated that you have that emotional starting point and where does that take you? Does that, do you think lead to quite a different result in the end? I'm not sure if it leads to a different result. I hope it does. What I think what it leads to is an, is, is a result where the client can measure the success of the project okay more easily because what we're doing within those conversations is trying to understand and discuss moments that the client wants to have yeah. it's like that moment i described with my son at the cafe with the sunlight and him just on my lap if you could understand the moments that you want to have in your life mm. then you could design a home that encourage more of those moments yeah yeah it's also a soul searching thing for the client as well and and different clients go deeper than than others you know and that's you know i think part of our job is to to coach clients and to help them understand what they want because i don't think many people without that introduction Mm. would be able to sit down and say yeah this is what makes me happy Mm. This is what I want from my kitchen. This is what I want from my living room. This is what does work within my house. This is what doesn't work. One of the things I thought about is it can work quite well, I think, to sort of almost give give each room a, a character of sorts. Think about it like, a, I don't know, a cast of Mr. Men characters or something. Yeah, exactly. You know, sort of dysfunctionally. But what, what, I don't know, when you walk into an entrance hall, do you want it to feel light or dark? You exactly. know, do you want it to feel intimate or very bright and welcoming or you know yeah and I, I think from there you can start to develop a color palette and the materiality of it and, exactly. and so on can't exactly. you because i think for me maybe the home is all about emotion and, and feelings we we joke that you know we want you to use the f word a lot which right. is feel you know tell me tell me what you want it to feel like and as you say 
when you walk through the front door, do you want it to feel like Mr. Mr. Happy or Mr. Sad? Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, um, and that that goes on to materials as well. It's funny the questions you get asked by people. It's like, what color shall I do the hallway? Yeah. Recently, we had like, I don't know whether or not to do the hall in terracotta or tile. What would you do? Yeah, and I really resist answering what I would do. Yeah, and help the client make a decision based not on random what they've seen other people do um, or what they think is popular what they think is right or wrong it's how do you want to feel when yeah. you walk into your hallway because then they're the experts at how they feel and and what they want to feel yeah so let's move on to your choice of current home mm-hmm. not so much a choice really because it's where you live <laughs> The house next door. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Joneses' house. Exactly. Love it. <laughs> yeah, the Joneses' house was knocked into second place by this uh, fantastic space we're in at the moment. So we're in Queens Park in northwest London. Tell us about this place. I mean, you've been here for a long time now. Yeah. What was here when you guys came here? Because I think Lindsay bought it originally, right? Yeah. And she actually, was, she made, was what was here first. She was I, what was here that's first. That's what drew me to the place. And and <laughs> and and actually, let's go a step back from there. Tell us yeah. about Lindsay, who I know traditionally is Lindsay Milne, and is now known as Lindsay Milne McLeod. Yeah, right. Everything gets branded. Everything. Yeah. So she's she's been rebranded. She she worked at World of Interiors for many years, but actually, we didn't cross over. So when I by the time I arrived, she had gone on to bigger and better things. But just tell us briefly about what it is that she does, and also kind of you guys getting together. Yeah. So what Lindsay does is always a very difficult one to answer. Right? Yeah. In simple terms, it's creative direction and set design. Yeah, That's the, the title, but everything under that is, is a whirlwind of creative genius, I think. Um, she does uh, sets for magazines, photo shoots. She does interiors. She does album covers. So anything where they need someone with a kind of conceptual artist mind that's able to take a concept to the highest heights and the most creative kind of vision. That's where people go to Lindsay. Yeah. And she's an absolute whirlwind. She's, she's incredible. We met through friends, the usual, got drunk, liked each other, liked each other more. And I remember coming back, coming back here one day and it was just, had a, the place always had a lovely feel and largely due to Lindsay's freedom and energy. She's a, yeah, very special, very special person. So, you met her and she was living here, was she? She's living here. Yeah. I was living in Angel and we moved in together here. What was it like? Wonderful. I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a very quirky house. The house at some point had been flipped over back mm. in the end. It was built at the end of the 1800s and it was a, a Lipton store. And so it was never a flat upstairs. And so they had a, they didn't have a staircase in the usual place, which went up and then, you know, spiraled up the up the building these were the storerooms of the shop so the the staircase is on the wrong side so it used to come in up a little spiral staircase but we had a shop that was was rented out to to Lindsay's theatre designer friends which, which went all the way to the back and you came up and it was it was wonderful it was very bohemian very free it was all it was it was makeshift because that's where that's where Lindsay was at the time right and I just remember that the upstairs which we still have is kind of untouched is this plastered room which she'd taken all the wallpaper off the, the walls and left this raw plaster. And I always remember the light switch, which, is, which, which we still have, which is um, a clear plastic one onto the metal bat box with all the plaster just behind it. 
I just thought, oh, she's good. She's good. <laughs> yeah. And then we decided bit by bit to kind of improve it and give it what we needed it to give us. Hence the, the project began. Hence the 10 year process. Yeah. So in the early days of you guys being together, was it like that Hollywood movie where you both got the white overalls on? You know, you're dabbing paint onto each other's noses. <laughs> was it like that? No. 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 I did get some white overalls once when we had to, for a Christmas present, because we were going to remove a chimney breast on Boxing Day, all at the full height of the house. <laughs> and so I bought some decorating overalls and I'd drawn lingerie on them because it was the classic, you know, Christmas gift from husband to wife. Yeah. It was the lingerie. So <laughs> she, she was all up for that. They yeah. were like two sizes too big, so it wasn't very flattering, but it was just her and I. So it was cool. And then we proceeded to demolish a, a chimney breast on Boxing Day, much <laughs> to the distress of our neighbours. And it, and it went on like that. We, throughout the whole process, I don't think we argued much at all. I mean, it was just such a one foot in front of the other process. I think we argue more now about little things mm. than we ever did about what this room's going to be. Um, Why is that, do you think? I think both of us had a very open mind about what it could be. I think we both are excited by possibility. So the need to have a defined result wasn't really on the cards. It was more, it was a lot about the process and just going through it together. And we both kind of share very similar needs and, and wants. The need to be for a place to be able to be multifunctional so it can be very calm, but also it can be a great making space, somewhere to tinker, somewhere to, you know, big floor area to get some vinyl out and splash some paints around and just make stuff. So we had kind of common common goals. We did have differences, but they never, for some reason, whether or not I blocked them out, I don't know, but I don't remember any big arguments. It's interesting that, isn't it? You, you obviously, it, there was a large part of you that enjoyed that process. Do you think yeah. that that was actually maybe informed by your childhood experiences with your dad? You're perhaps you're replicating that. Yeah, definitely. There's, there's definitely that connection with, it wasn't, a, it didn't feel foreign to me. Mm. It felt very, very normal. And I think the same for Lindsay. She's in, mm. she's grown up in a world of making stuff, and you know, I think she, I think there's a story where she, she kind of redid their kitchen when she was seven years old or something. Because again, she she had to. She was the one that was best place to do it. So yeah, definitely, definitely a belonging. And that was it. I think a lot of people thought we were crazy. I mean, it was literally evenings and weekends for many, many years. And we had to-do lists that were so long. They all took different forms. There were spreadsheets and handwritten ones. And there was something, like with anything, when you take on something big, it's nice to break it down into little chunks and make a game of it. You know, crossing yeah. things off felt very, very therapeutic. And we were building a home. Towards what end, I didn't know. But Well, well so that's, that was the next question, obviously, logically. So we talked about how when you're a boy you don't really remember the finished product yeah. especially or the, that enjoyment moment do you enjoy being here or or do you actually not see it as finished yet i do enjoy being here always i think there's always the need to evaluate what what's missing mm. i think that's human nature but no i do enjoy where where it is and what we've got to it's, it's also coming to terms with the reality of a finished home right i think we see a lot in in magazines and online where they're beautifully presented there there's not a child in sight and everything's really tidy and as I said when you arrived you know we we faked it today because we tidied up for we <laughs> you know last night there were piles of papers on the island unit of, of stuff that we've got to get together before we go away next week and 
you know, there's model aircrafts all over the, the dining room table from the weekend with chargers and nothing very aesthetically pleasing. But mm. as I walked around last night making my list of what to tidy up, it was like, I really like that. I like that mess. That mess I don't like so much. But that mess is a good mess. Okay. Um, Artful clutter, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's very little of it that I can see, but it's, it's been tidied up. But no, I mean, look, it's 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 all a mirage, and and the stuff that you see on Instagram or on the Modern House website, you know, let's be honest, that's not the reality of how yeah. it is nearly all of the time. When the children have got hold of it and the dogs running around, and it's I think it's important that people acknowledge that. Yeah, I think I wish I was brave enough to publish pictures of it in its worst state, where it is a mess and in a not good mess. Mm. But I think it's it's sometimes, again, Lindsay and I can be can be different at times. Like sometimes you're like, I need to, we're less, you know, I need to, we're going to tidy up before we relax tonight. And I'm like, leave it, it's fine. It's only going to come out all again tomorrow. Yeah. And then it's about the headspace that someone's in. Yeah. And so the need to tidy and make things perfect again is is therapeutic because you feel like life's under control again. Yeah. Well, we've touched on something there that I'd like to explore a little bit more with you, actually. You know, the, the way that the home supports your mental health generally. When I first met you, it was because I've been commissioned to write about this place, a world of interiors. And one of the things that really struck me when you talked about the house was you talked all about alleviating anxiety. So can you just, could you touch on some of the moves you've made here that you think do that and, and reduce anxiety for you guys when you're living here? Yeah, I think the first, if I, if I mentally walk through the house, the first thing was the, the hallway. So we live on Kilburn Lane. It's a busy, bustling street. And we felt that as you walk in, we wanted to feel a kind of tranquility and um, we discussed earlier about that that feeling of you know we, we were on the honeymoon we went to marrakesh and traveled around but that that moment of walking off the the busyness of the street off into a very calm courtyard with beautiful sounds that's what our hallway does for us it's a moment to breathe yeah it's quite long it currently has a canoe in it but that's temporary and it's very much a decompression space then it allows us to have what I find exciting about the house is it allows us to have everything that we need in our lives mm. to function. So it's a place of a place of work. So our studio is on the ground floor at the back. It's our home, but it's also a place where we play as well. And those functions, although they're they're separate in that the studio is on a different floor, there's definitely an overlap between our home, which has a very different aesthetic to our studio. So up up here it's it's more traditional, a little bit more bohemian, and downstairs it's it's very kind of crafted, contemporary, all about natural life. So it was a it, it was a, a very clear decision that we made that the studio must have a different feel to the house, mm. so that you you knew when you were at work and you knew when you were at home, mm-hmm. uh, and also an antidote. I mean, it, different rooms in the house feel feel very different. So. Uh, the room we're in now is the kind of big open plan kitchen living room. And then at the back, there's the, the more intimate dining room, which sometimes doubles as a sitting room. The dining table can move between the two rooms so we can we get to choose how we want to use it. So in the summer, where we don't want to be sitting next to the road, we want to be sitting next to the, you know, the garden terrace. The dining table can come in here and then the seats are arranged in there and there's a play space in the middle. There's, you know, there's a stove. So it's designed to allow the functions that we need to happen, happen, but also the kind of the calm that we need, I think. Yeah. You very interestingly talked about magic earlier. 
I would love to just hear how you've tried to put that magic into this place. There are probably various various things. We, I think you should always try and design a house as if it was to play hide and seek in. Right. If at all possible, avoid dead ends. There's views between the different spaces. So when you stand on the roof terrace, you can see glimpses down into the studio. There's a, there's a skylight in the middle of the, the grass with a bit of plant next to it, which looks a little bit like a pond, but that again looks down through a through a gold formica uh, reveal into the studio below. And it's lovely being in the dining room and then you can turn the lights on in the studio and then those clear story lights and the pond are all illuminated from, from below. And even the, the, you know, the staircase from the ground floor up is covered in fake grass. And that was actually one thing Lindsay and I almost argued about. But we, we had a meeting in the office, said like, come on, what, what do we cover these things in? We went through the office, okay, stone, could leave us steel, could do carpet, we could do... And then one of the team went, how about fake grass? We went, okay, why not? And then we just left that as a seed, and then it went, actually, it's, that's a really lovely... If we find the right grass, and there were like then eight different samples of grass that we tried out to get Can the I right... Just say artificial grass is not grown from seed. What? <laughs> shattered my dreams. <laughs> But the question is why, and I think the answer probably would be why not, right? And, and the more considered answer is we wanted it to be fun. We wanted it to be, to be different. There was the opportunity where we could do something different. I mean, we were the client, so we weren't having to mm. get, you know, get it past anyone. And I don't think it's ever failed to make me smile. But when it first went in, the builders that were putting it in just kept saying, really? Mm. I was like, just go for it, do it, do it, do it. And I remember the evening, we'd had, we had uh, tungsten lights at the time in the hallway. So the, the light was very warm and you know, orangey yellow. And then there was this green staircase that kind of amplified the green. And Lindsay came home and she saw it. <laughs> and I went, hi, hon. And she went, okay. And she came upstairs and she admitted to me, she burst into tears. Did she? Like, what on earth have you done? And uh, thankfully now she loves it. Well, there's something else that we're not talking about about this staircase as well, isn't there? Yes. Go on. It slides a bit like a Harry Potter staircase, which it wasn't a goal. It wasn't in my brief to have a sliding staircase, but it was to hide a motorbike. And at the time I was getting around London a lot on a bike and I needed it to be off the street because I think bikes get stolen and they get rusty. And so I said to Lindsay, you know, I'd like to, I think I'd like to hide this bike and quite rightly she said you're not having it indoors and so it was it was trying to understand why she didn't want the bike indoors and she said i just don't want to look at it yeah and i don't want it to put oil on the floor mm. and i said so if i hide it she's like yeah if you can hide it have it so that was it it was how do we then hide a motorbike on the ground floor and that was the best place for it under the stairs and there were lots of different ideas about the thing coming up like a drawbridge and all these counterweights and it was a, quite a nice puzzle to try and solve. And then one day, the, the temporary staircase that Lindsay and I built out of scaffold planks that had been there for too many years had to be moved out of the way because the plaster wanted to plaster that wall. And so Lindsay and I just slid it across and suddenly it was, ah, oh, yeah. obvious. And so it's, it's, it slides out the way and it's very simply done. It's a very rigid steel structure that has a, a heavy duty sliding door gear at the top mm. and some nylon rollers on a brass runner at the bottom. But you wouldn't know unless somebody said, do you want to see something silly? <laughs> it's, it's, it's so clever. And, it, you know, it does have that magic. 
You know, it's really interesting. So when people come around to our house, Indigo, my eldest, will invariably offer them a house tour. She's kind of into this. She's at <laughs> that sort of age. <laughs> but the reason that she wants to do it is, is very specific. So in our bathroom, well, we've got lots of windows in our bedroom and there was nowhere obvious to put any storage for our clothes. So we had to sacrifice one of the bedrooms to make a kind of walk-in wardrobe. Yeah. However, this thing was to be accessed through the bathroom, but there was a socking great ring, but concrete ring beam at kind of shin level running the whole way around, around the room, which we hadn't known until we started making the opening between the two. So the idea was you'd have this lovely arrangement where you could go from your bedroom, through your bathroom, get changed and so on, slightly ruined by this, this beam. <laughs> the builders had already started making the hole as they drilled down, they discovered it. And so we thought, okay, well, rather than block it back up again, let's kind of make it a virtue. So now we have made it, I mean, what you called a kind of Narnia moment and your discovery of the church earlier on. And it's a, it's basically a, it looks like a, a set of shelves in the bathroom and the shelves are covered in shells and bits of old coral and things like that that Faye's picked up over the years. And if you happen to lean against this thing... It will, Amazing. it will open, and it will bring you into this kind of other world. And the and the and the dressing room's panelled, and it has a very different atmosphere. And you have to step over the threshold to get into the dressing room. But Indigo, for whatever reason, is is just thinks this is the best thing in the world. So Amazing. when people come around, she'll scuttle upstairs. She'll make sure that it's closed so that the big reveal can happen. And she'll take them in there. She'll stand them in the bathroom, and she'll say to them, "Right, what's unusual about this room?" <laughs> and they'll scratch their heads. And they'll, and they'll kind of prod the bath a little bit and they'll maybe turn the taps on and they'll try and kind of figure out what she's getting at. And then one of them will go, hang on a sec, what happens if I... And, mm. you, and, you, and you push this thing and obviously the, the shells are kind of blue tacked on <laughs> <laughs> or else it'd be chaos. But it is, you know, those, that, that, that magic you talk about, it often comes from having to design your way out of a bit of a hole, right? Exactly. Constraint, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So that's taught me quite a lot. I think it's those moments of surprise, isn't it? Yeah. But I think you've really captured that here. I have to say, I think it's got that. It's a very memorable place. You talked about, you used the word happiness earlier on. And I, I, I think um, you, you do, don't you? When you get into your 40s, you get quite reflective somehow. I don't know about you, but I certainly have done. And one of the things that's very clear that makes us happy is feeling a sense of community. Yeah. Tell us about your community here, because actually you've got a community outside the front door, but you've also got your own sort of your own family through your through your studio. And then, of course, your real family upstairs as well. So how do you feel about that that aspect of living here? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I love having the studio downstairs. I, I'm very lucky. My team are amazing. You know, I always, I always say that and without sounding too cheesy, that is that does feel like a family or a group of friends because you're going through difficult things, you're working, right? It's not, it's not easy. And then obviously Oban and Linz are up here. There's always overlap, so I love it when Oban's coming up and in and out of the studio. Whenever he comes home, it's, you know, he's, you know, he knows to come and give me a kiss at, the, at my desk, even if I'm in a meeting. And that, that humanizes mm. the meeting that I'm in at the time. But then outside the front door, I really, I really like the people that are in the shops and in the cafes, and I kind of make a, a point of it. Of, of saying hello, waving, and finding out how people are. I think one of the other ingredients to happiness, I don't know about you, but I think is also sort of, you know, a strong sense of purpose. How would you define your own sense of purpose? I realised quite 
maybe maybe late on that actually I think the reason I enjoy doing what I'm doing is because I'm helping people and there's other people in the studio that have that same same desire I like I like making people happy on a really basic level mm. and I, it turns out that I now do that through through architecture and through through building people's homes mm. I love that stage one meeting that initial meeting with the client mm. you can instantly help them within an hour you can clarify confusion and and, and offer some solutions to them that that feels really nice to help people well definitely and I, I and that's why I love doing things like this podcast because actually there is you know if someone listens to it and they take something from it that's really that's a really nice thing you know Absolutely. it's a great sense of purpose yeah. now the other thing I was going to ask you was last time I saw you you talked about this guy called David Goggins <laughs> have you looked him up so I've so I said I've read his book yeah I mean amazing what an amazing guy an amazing incredible story. guy so he's yeah. like a Navy SEAL, who was like the the ultimate kind of Navy SEAL, but had a pretty sort of dark and abusive upbringing, and he channeled that into the ultimate form of motivation. Yeah, right. What, what out of interest? What? How do you find your motivation, and why does someone like him inspire you? It it kind of goes up and down. Obviously, I think like most people, I think when you're when you're doing something that is so difficult, architecture is not easy. I don't think. Or the way we do it, at least it isn't. Yeah. And so sometimes it is difficult and your, your motivation wanes. And I found out about David Goggins through watching YouTube videos and, and coming across this guy who talks about hardship and struggle. I had COVID back in October and I found my motivation dropped, surprisingly, being locked in a bedroom, not able to hug my son for two weeks. That was the hardest part of it. And I just felt I didn't, I didn't really want to do any work. And people said, you don't need to take a break. But, you know, running a business, it's not always like that. Lying in bed doing other stuff isn't really going to help either. So during my time off, I would sit there and looked at, you know, motivation and all things. I've always been interested in how to make your life easier. You know, how, how can you run a business more easily? How can, how can life be more enjoyable? How can you find more happiness in life? And so as I was reading through my, my kind of usual people, this guy, David Goggins, turn, turned up. And yeah, his story of, of struggle were, was amazing and, and inspirational. And that all sounds very cheesy. Basically, it made me realize that the lack of motivation that I was suffering at the time, I needed to push through. And that actually dealing with hardship and struggle was something that it struck a chord with me Firstly, from doing the house and something that's very emotional. <laughs> You'd never know it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, this better not go in. Something that's very emotional, which is, you know, Lindsay and I went through 10 years of IVF. 10 years, it's a lot. So, yeah, that's, that, that's 10 years of being told, no, it hasn't worked. It hasn't worked. It hasn't worked. And so finding someone who, who had also gone through a struggle and seeing that actually I've got through that and I've got through other difficult things in my life that why am I suddenly struggling to, to just make a list of this client's goals? Yeah. And that, was, that struck me as ridiculous. So I was able to, to build a house, I was able to, to go through 10 years of, of IVF, but I couldn't write a list. It was just that, that's pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> And it's because I needed to kind of strengthen my mind a little bit on that stuff. I could handle the big stuff. It was the lip stuff. 
but I just wasn't willing to, to go through at that time during lockdown. And that really snapped me out of it. And then I realized that actually it got me into getting up earlier, finding time to process my thoughts. And then I was reading books and the, there's a book called Tool for Titans that was a really, really interesting read. And in that, one of the conclusions was that most of the people that seem to have their life together yeah. seem to have common threads, that they seem to do some exercise, they seem to meditate, and they seem to write journals. And I thought, I'm, up, I'm always up for trying new things. Mm. Let's give it a go. So I did. I started getting up early, stretching and doing exercise in the morning, meditating through an app called Calm. Um, and then I just carried on doing it. And, and I find, and it, and it has helped me process you know, difficult work days and difficult work situations where you can remove yourself from it, remove yourself from the emotion of something and say, how can I fix this? So what, how early are you getting up to be able to fit this in? About six o'clock. Six o'clock. Which for, I know for some is not early, but that for me was, was a... Yeah. Uh, yeah, so you're getting up for the sunrise and suddenly you feel, I'm ahead of this day. Mm. And you've got, you've got at least two hours to yourself before mm. things start to fire up. Mm. I really like the fact that you've taken a step back and, and yeah, come up, come up with this kind of battle plan for yourself. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, David Goggins. I love David Goggins because he 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 talks about callousing the mind. Yeah, that's the phrase he uses. You need to callous it, much like you would the calluses on your hand. You know, doing manual labour. That that's how he sees it. Yeah. What are your calluses? You know, why why did you feel the need to do this stuff? Do you think? Because I was lacking motivation too often. So you think it was motivation? Yeah, yeah. It was it was sitting in front of a difficult task and sometimes a really easy task. Yeah. That if I just spent twenty minutes doing it, I would do it. As David Goggins said, callous your mind a bit, that if you just say, Look, you need to go through this little bit of suffering, I mean it's pathetic. It's like you just gotta do twenty minutes. Yeah. And there's so many tactics in order to be able to get over that. And I have to consciously say, just start it. Yeah. Doesn't need to be great. And once you've started going through that brief or that design and you really you can then see what's not great about it and then mm. you can react to it and make that bit better mm. whereas you the the pressure to sit there and just suddenly imagine something out of nowhere and it to be amazing yeah. it's just not how the design process works exactly. it's not how most things in life work yeah. you need to just do it and then next time do it a bit better yeah and that goes from architecture to parenting i'm sure yeah 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 yeah, for sure. Before we move on to your home and the future that we want to talk about, just to quickly dwell on this house a second. From a decorative perspective, it's obviously very much a mix of you and Lindsay here. But you, you know, it's it's you've got old and new. It's a, it's a real mix of stuff. I I remember when I interviewed you guys for World of Interiors, Lindsay said something brilliant, which is that she said that she loves fishing things out of skips, and she said that. She thought the skip was a really great word because when you find something you really like, it makes you skip. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, like, I suppose my question is, what compels you and or her to pull that thing out of a skip? Why that thing and why not another thing? What is it that you're looking at? It comes back to what we talked about before, is that feeling. If yeah. you look at two things, it's looking for the thing that gives you the feeling that you, you would like to have more of. Yeah. So if it's a very quick, like we've, over there in that cabinet, there's loads of odd tools and and things that we've seen at car boot sales. And it's and it's either a connection to the past, so there's a lot of them are, might be a connection to the past, like that that cabinet's full of carpentry tools. My granddad was a carpenter. Right. And and I love that connection to the past. I've got his plane downstairs 
that was has our McLeod stamped into the back of it. Mm -hmm. Some of it is just feeling about wouldn't that that isn't that a beautiful object? Yeah. Couldn't that work well with that on that table? And some of it's just the need to have something. I, I recognise that as well, where you realise that I don't really need this thing, but <laughs> I found it and I'm gonna keep it somewhere. The weirdest one we've ever got was Lindsay once called me up and said, They're cutting a big tree down at the church on the corner at lunchtime. Can you guys go and go and get a log? I've told them that you might be coming. And I went, yeah, okay. I, I said, you, you guys okay with that? We're going to help Lindsay get shooting. You'll need the car. I'm like, log, how big is this log? It's quite big. We've got to go. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> and we, so we, we, we went down there by foot to begin with to, to weigh up the size of this log. And we'd, we'd seen a, a client's house. He had this big log coffee table that looked amazing. And so Lindsay had that in mind. But suddenly this thing weighs so much. It was, it was about a metre in diameter and, you know, 30 centimetres thick. And it took five rather large people to lift it onto the top of our car on the roof rack, which then bottomed out the suspension. We could just about drive it around the corner. And then some other friends had to come one night and it stayed on our car for a week because we couldn't get it <laughs> off. I had to come over and with two skateboards and a lot of grunting and worrying about broken limbs as we lifted it off the car, we wheeled it through to the back courtyard. And it lived there for three years until we cut it up. And it still lives there. And it was, it was I don't know, the, the, you know, the joy of the hunt, the, yeah. the excitement of, oh, what if we got these, you know, you know, the idea of bringing that upstairs to make a coffee table, it would have been ridiculous. I mean, you couldn't lift it, it was so heavy. So some things are successful and some things aren't. But I think that's it. you just got to be open to say, yes, let's give it a go. And, yeah. and again, going back to that hardship thing, the fact that those things are so hard yeah. means you have more you know, attachment to them. Yeah. Definitely I could say that about this house, the yeah. fact that we went through so much to get it. And probably even, you know, it feels strange to say it because I don't think anyone could love their children you know, more, but the fact that it took so much to get open probably means that I don't take it for granted at all. Yeah, I think that's definitely probably true. Probably why I'm a bit soppy every time I mention him. Apologies. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. I mean, it really is. Let, let's move on to your home of the future. If I ask you to conjure up this thing in your mind's eye that you're, yeah, in a slightly dreamlike state, maybe later in life, you're occupying this thing. What it? What, what is it? I do have, I do have quite a vivid image in my head after getting your your brief. Yeah. And it was it was a space of around six by six meters, very modest ceiling height, two point five meters. Sorry, this is probably very technical. Wow. This is I like this. This is great. Yeah, carry on. It's very calm and simple, and meditative. It's up high with a view. Okay. The view is important. And what what is the view? See, that's the interesting thing. When I first pictured it, it was the from the house in an enormous cake, which was over a lock, hills, mountains in the distance, and the sky. So it's a landscape that's ever changing. So you wake up in the morning and and see the sunrise, and you you'd see the sunset and all of the weather rolling in. You know. So it was, it, was, it was a picture that ever changed. But then very rapidly when I started imagining this place, which is, it's, it's got 
either clay or raw plastered walls, like all, our, all the walls in our house are raw plaster. Um, and it's got a very simple floor. I don't, that, in my mind, that keeps flipping between something in, like from lino to the, you know, quite rough floors that we've got here. And I suppose it keeps flipping because it's not important. Yeah. But then as soon as I put, thought, where is it? It wouldn't be somewhere remote. We talked about before that I think it's actually on the top of this house. And the view, we're very lucky with the view, we look down a terrace of houses which, which kind of disappear into the distance and there's a big tree. And that is a scene which has foreground, mid-ground and distance and, you know, big skies. So I can see all of those things that I would see in Ormskeg, but possibly less beautiful, but different. And there's Trellick Tower in the distance. You can see the seasons change. So every time you look out, it's different. And I think the reason it's not up in the perfect location, which I don't know exists, I don't think it exists. But somewhere um, in Scotland? Yeah. I don't think it's there, I think it's here. Yeah. yeah. Because I think it needs to be, I want it to be achievable. So we're, when we work with clients, you know, one of the things we say is think big, think the impossible. But I've thought the impossible, I thought what if we moved to the middle of nowhere, to the, to the north of Scotland, and it didn't, it didn't give me that feeling yeah, it didn't it didn't strike a chord, and so I realised that actually that's not where it needs to be. Is that because it doesn't have the community aspect? I think that's part of it. I think it doesn't have the options. Like from here, mm-hmm. I realised that I'm quite obsessed with transport. <laughs> yeah, from walking to running, skateboarding. We've got bicycles. I've got scooters, like an old Vespa. I've got motorbikes. We've got a car, which we're selling we've now got the camper van which would be our main form of transport which suddenly gives us so much more freedom and then you know there's there's a canoe and I'm also currently learning to fly because it suddenly gives you that that freedom to to go anywhere Mm. I think that's what that's what I like so that that space is actually on top of this house that's amazing Um, to know that yeah that's very do you feel quite settled and grounded by that thought Excited by it, yeah. yeah. I quite like that we're actually restricted in this terrace house in Kilburn Lane, mm. and actually you could build anything you want here. So, so think think about home as a broader notion. Is it specific to this building we're in now, or actually is it about the people you share it with? And could you take those people to a different place and it would still feel at home? Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I think home doesn't necessarily need to be a location. It's a place where you feel comfortable and where you're with the people that you want to be with. That cliche, home away from home, right? You know, going to visit my parents, that's a home for me. Even though I never lived there as a kid, it's still a home. So I, I want you to try and look into the future and you're similarly bearded, but it's very gray <laughs> at this point. You're a, you're a silver-haired fox. Oban is a grown-up man. I know, right? Wow. It's a lot, it feels a long way in the future, but probably will go by quickly, judging by what everyone else says. Where are you living at that point? Back of a van, probably. Back of a van. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's it. Actually, you, you, I remember you mentioning that before, and I couldn't do it. I, you, I remember thinking, no, I don't, I don't know what this house will need to be. Mm. But as soon as you say Oban's not in it, you know he's a he's a grown yeah he's a grown man, and hopefully not still at home. Hopefully yeah. he comes to visit us. Yeah. But then it needs to change. Then it then it would be something completely different. And I think Lindsay and I would be less locked to this place. Sorry, Lindsay, that's the first she's hearing of this. <laughs> Well, you, but no, but you, I think that you're quite unusual, actually, 
in this generation of of state you know you've been here a long time and you and you're adapting it and you're making it work as your needs change and of course as we know many people have craved more nature in their lives so that's why it's mm. really interesting actually to meet a, you know a family who are making things work in a decidedly urban environment who've decided to be comfortable with their lot develop what they have but in a sensible way do it manually over time you know there's a lot to be said for all of that i think yeah and actually we we have probably got, had more nature during the lockdown yeah and certainly following it just by habits rather than locations there's a great book called the comfort crisis and it talked about the need to be to have a 20 minutes of nature yeah and it's quite it's interesting you hear those kind of sayings have 20 minutes of nature and it's very easy to kind of belittle it as you know poppycock and oh god here's the next fad but again having that attitude of yeah give it a go mm. and so i'd get up and go for a walk just to be in nature or the park the nearest thing uh, that we've got to nature here and it helped i mean it really it gave me my my own headspace first thing in the morning. There's there's no one if not just a few people there. And suddenly walking around the park, I'd see two or three people I'd, I'd see every day, and got into the habit of saying you know, hello to them, which mm. was a lovely little human connection. You know, great things come from that. It helps if you have a dog or like a pet, don't you think? You know, you <laughs> see you see you see dog owners, and it, it's it's like it it just it galvanizes them. I think it's yeah. an excuse to start a conversation. It's a good excuse to get out as well. And yeah. we were we were millimeters close to getting a dog. I, I quite like being able to talk to people on my terms or just saying hello to them and maybe commenting on something. But every time I bumped in someone that was talking about a dog, I probably would just get bored of that. It's the same with motorbikes. I love riding motorbikes, but standing around talking to people about them it's not my, my idea of fun. Just tell us quickly about your love of motorbikes, because this kind of this has led somewhere, hasn't it? This it has led somewhere. Again, this is the the attitude of just give everything a go, be open to learning, and and you know if some you know you can be lucky sometimes. I got, I got into motorbikes through transport, my love of getting places efficiently, <laughs> quickly. quickly and efficiently. <laughs> that Lindsay and I decided to get a scooter. You know, getting around London on a on a scooter was so efficient. But then you'd pull up to the lights and there'd be someone on a big motorbike who would move off effortlessly. So I said to Linz, I think I'd like to get my, my motorbike license, which seemed again like a dream, you know, wow, riding a motorbike, that'd be amazing. And then that just led from one thing to another. And somebody said, you know, you should, you should have a try yourself out on track. And I thought, well, okay, I love learning. So I'll find, find is there a school that, that teaches you how to go around a racetrack? And there was, it was called the California Superbike School. And I booked my first two days on that. And for whatever reason, at the end of those two days, they said, you know, can we have a chat to you after the day's finished? And I said, yeah, yeah, of course. And I thought they were going to say, you know, what's it like with that bike on track? Or, you know, how long have we been growing your beard for? And he went, would you like to try out to become a coach? And my, my, I picked my jaw up off the floor and was like, what is, is it full time? And he was like, no, part time, 10 to 15 days. There's a lot you have to get through and you have to go through something called the grilling, which is the most brutal interview you'll ever get through. And then I managed to learn all the tech, get through all of that, and then train over the next year to become a superbike coach. 
Oh, sugar. I should have mentioned that at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I part-time coach people to, to corner motorcycles on racetracks, which is a ridiculous thing to do. But I'm very lucky, very lucky. Again, that just comes from being open-minded about trying stuff. But what, what is it, you know, you've obviously learned to be comfortable with challenging yourself and putting yourself in difficult situations where you feel the fear, but do it anyway. How have you done that? Um, I think the fear is quite low when you start something. I quite like being a beginner at something. Like yeah. When you start something, the, a really small win can feel really, really big. Yeah. But the better and better you get at something, you have to try so much harder to get a win. Yeah. Some wins are easier because you can keep repeating them. But so that I think that's for me there, there seems to be less fear because it, there's it's easier to get an achievement at a lower level. Mm. And I think that's one of the re- and it's I think that's one of the reasons I I like learning new things. Mm. It's the treasure hunt that we talked about. Mm. It's the new experience and having kids allows you to 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 do that stuff without people looking at you strangely. Yeah. <laughs> like a 47 year old man going down the road on a skateboard is an odd thing. Yeah. If you've got a child next to you, it's fine. Yeah. Get away with it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay, so 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 t- so taking you right through then to this 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 the silver fox that we've got who's in maybe oh, yeah. in his 70s or 80s. Yeah. What would you like to be remembered for? What do you think is going to be your legacy? Hate to think. Hate to think, but I probably should. I probably the first thing that comes to mind is probably something that I need to work more on. I'd love to be seen as patient. I'd love to be seen as someone who had time for people. And I feel as though I make time for people, but I'd, I'd like to be remembered for having patience with the people closest to me, which sometimes I don't have. Mm. And I'd love to love to be better at that. I'd like to be remembered. It feels very narcissistic talking about this. No, no, it's good. I'd like to be remembered for helping people, like all the things that I've said. Yeah. Helping people and making a difference, which sounds a bit pathetic when all you're doing is building people's homes. But yeah, that would be, it'd be nice that he always gave it a go. Yeah. And sometimes he did okay. Yeah, that would be nice. Love it, Duncan. I've, that's that's a great place to finish. I've, honestly, I've so much enjoyed talking to you about this stuff. Me too. Thank you. I love your yeah your honesty and your ability to be open is is really refreshing. Actually, it's terrifying. <laughs> no, it's brilliant. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening, and I really hope you all enjoyed it. Duncan's given us some great photos from his childhood, um, some very good retro stuff that we'll put up on the website. So do take a look at that. Uh, We've also featured his house and studio previously, um, and we'll link to that as well in the show notes. Uh, But of course, you can also go directly to our website at themodernhouse.com. If you can spare a second to rate or review the show, um, that would mean a huge amount to us because it really helps other people to find it as well. Um, Don't forget to follow uh, and you'll be alerted about new episodes as soon as they come out. This episode was produced by Hannah Phillips, edited by Oscar Crawford, and the music is by Father. Thank you again so much for being here and talk to you all next time.